The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, James Monroe. He dropped out of college to join the Continental Army, fighting alongside Washington in some of the most famous fights of the Revolution. From there, he became qualified, immensely qualified, to take over the White House. And the nation agreed, giving him 80% of the vote the first term and winning a nearly unanimous victory for his second term. The country was feeling on top of the world, but the future would be filled with challenges, many of them going back to this very president. The last founding father president, James Monroe, is next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. To help us understand this founding father president is Tim McGrath. By day, he's a well-respected, successful business executive by nights and weekends, an incredibly talented, award-winning author. His book, John Barry, An American Hero in the Age of Sale, was awarded the American Revolutionary War Roundtable Book of the Year for 2010. We want to talk about James Monroe, though, and Tim's new book called James Monroe, A Life is the Perfect Place to Turn. We'll link to this title on our AmericanPotus.com website if you're interested in checking it out. Tim, we appreciate you taking the time to join us here on the podcast. Well, thank you, Alan and Scott, very much for having me. It's a privilege to to take part and uh, much appreciated. Thank you so much, Tim. Let's start at the Revolution and Monroe's service in the Revolution. How did that set the foundation for his later political successes? Well, that's a good start for it. And I think uh, it's uh, William and Mary was his jumping off point. He was uh, a son of a farmer and carpenter who uh, both his parents, Monroe's parents died when he was young. And he was literally uh, his guardian angel was his uncle, Joseph Jones, who was a very successful attorney and a member of the House of Burgesses and a go-to guy for advice by uh, his friends, Washington and Jefferson. And uh, Jones saw that he got a chance to advance his schooling at William & Mary just at the time when the colonies were feeling their oats and looking to rebel. He took part in the seizure of the uh, powder magazine, uh, what they called the powder horn with some other students. And uh, the summer of 76, he enlisted in the 3rd Virginia Regiment and was uh, almost immediately promoted to a lieutenant among his uh, fellow uh, comrades in arms was an old schoolmate of his from uh, elementary school, if you could call it that, a prep school, John Marshall. In any event, the 3rd Virginia uh, marches uh, up to New York, where the Continental Army is, and they arrive in Harlem Heights uh, the day that uh, Washington's troops are routed at the Battle of Kipps Bay, uh, where he famously lost his temper and says, is this, are these the men I've got to, you know, to fight this war with? The very next day, uh, Monroe and the 3rd Virginia uh, take an active role in a smaller battle of Harlem Heights, which is a, 
uh, small but uh, significant at the time, uh, continental victory. Monroe uh, carried a rifle, uh, which meant that when he fired uh, his weapon, he was much more accurate. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it was a riskier enterprise because it took nearly twice as long to load a rifle as it did a musket. He also served in a, a short uh, skirmish against uh, Robert Rogers of Rogers Rangers fame from the French and Indian War. Uh, and then when uh, Washington had lost Fort Lee, Fort Washington, uh, it was in his uh, retreat in December of 76 uh, down New Jersey. Monroe as a lieutenant had to uh, the duty on a couple of occasions to uh, count the troops that were having. They were disappearing through desertion in record numbers. And uh, he wrote 50 years ago in his autobiography, which he never finished, about seeing Washington come up with the rear. He was not leading the troops, but wanted to see if the British were following him. And uh, he wrote about Washington. He was always near the enemy, and his countenance and manner made an impression on me which time can never efface. A deportment so firm, so dignified, so exalted, but yet so modest and composed, I have never seen in any other person. On Christmas Day, when Washington's doing his uh, This Makes or Breaks Us uh, crossing of the Delaware, Monroe is one of the uh, volunteer officers, along with William Washington, a captain in the third and a distant cousin of the generals, volunteers to lead the advance uh, party. And they crossed the Delaware hours before Washington and his troops do and uh, uh, reconnoiter and, and get everything set in place for the uh, Battle of Trenton to take place. In a charge during that fight, Monroe is uh, seriously wounded, an artery severed up above in his shoulder. And we would not be having this conversation today were it not for the fact that Monroe's troops uh, woke up a house of uh, uh, the dogs in a house that belonged to a doctor named Riker, who came out expecting to scream his New Jersey accent at the Hessian Germans and found out that he was surrounded by uh, Americans with a Virginia accent. And when he realizes what they're doing, he said, well, I'll come. Maybe I can help some poor soul if uh, something happens to them. And the poor soul turned out to be James Monroe. He's promoted to captain. Uh, he served... Uh, at the Battle of uh, Brandywine, where he met Lafayette. They became lifelong friends and uh, stayed through Valley Forge as an aide to Lord Sterling. Uh, he took uh, a significant role in the Battle of Monmouth, again, uh, in the midst of the battle, sneaking in through the woods to see what Cornwallis was up to. And uh, at that point, though, there was no advancement for him. Washington was very particular not to bring in too many Virginia officers. So he really didn't have a chance to uh, do much with that. He left to go to Virginia, and Washington wrote a glowing letter of recommendation for Monroe, saying he, uh, he has in every instance maintained the reputation of a brave, active, and sensible officer. And that took uh, Monroe back to, uh, back to Williamsburg. I was amazed. I, I guess I always knew that he had been injured uh, Trenton, but I had no idea how close to death he had come. Yeah, he was he was very, very lucky. Uh, they uh, Had that not happened, he probably would have bled to death on King Street in Trenton. And uh, so it was just a happenstance situation that 
are sort of the sort of things you read about and go, oh, no, you couldn't make this up. Right. And that's the first of many of those with yeah. James Monroe. Now, you, you show throughout the book a central theme of his life was his friendship with his mentor, Thomas Jefferson. Not not a bad mentor to have. Uh, how did how did Monroe and Jefferson meet, and what explains that very enduring friendship and partnership? Again, his uncle Joseph Jones takes a, a part in this. Monroe is thinking about studying the law, and uh, he actually asks Jones, "You know, should I study under George Wythe, who is the preeminent legislator and, and law expert in Virginia, or should I?" study under Jefferson. And Jones says, by all means, go with Jefferson. White is brilliant, but he's representing the past. You know, Jefferson's career is happening now, and he would certainly be somebody that, you know, you could uh, establish a nice relationship with. So they meet. By this time, Jefferson is the governor of Virginia, and he takes an immediate liking to Monroe. He sees that he's very, very earnest and wants to uh, improve himself. He certainly has uh, a wealth of ambition beneath his six-foot frame. And uh, Jefferson uh, takes him on as one of his law students. Back then, you learned law, I guess, the way you learned to play the piano, practice, practice, practice. Uh, Jefferson had these young men reading the classics and also reading Blackstone's Law and giving them whatever opportunities he could, while at the same time, Monroe is a lieutenant colonel uh, Jefferson sends on a couple of missions down into the Carolinas to find out what, again, Cornwallis is up to. And at one point, Monroe has a hand in devising a Pony Express 60, 70 years before the actual one was uh, came about. Uh, so the, the relay messages to Governor Jefferson can get back at a much quicker pace. There's a great quote by uh, Jefferson when he writes a letter of introduction for Monroe to James Madison where he talks about him and he says of Monroe, turn his soul wrong side outwards, and there is not a speck on it. Over the course of their relationship, Monroe acquired plenty of specks, <laughs> but certainly at that time, that was uh, pretty much uh, where they were. And they remain you know, close friends all their lives. And Jefferson uh, uses uh, Monroe very much to his advantage. He's getting information from Monroe while Monroe is Washington's uh, minister to France at the tail end of the Reign of Terror and before the Napoleonic Wars. Later, Jefferson sends him to Paris again to close the deal on the Louisiana Purchase, appealing to Monroe with his uh, young family to cross the Atlantic again by saying, no other man can be found who can do what you do. And uh, while Monroe is in Europe. He goes from finishing the Louisiana Purchase to becoming an envoy to Spain in hopes of acquiring Florida and then minister to Great Britain, where he's pretty much treated uh, as a persona non grata yeah. by Parliament and uh, King George alike. They have their uh, small falling out that is instantly taken care of when Monroe returns to the States. Uh, Jefferson, uh, Monroe has wanted to live near Jefferson and his Highland estate is not too far at all from uh, Monticello. And they fre vis frequently visited each other. I came out of the research on this guy's really believing that Thomas Jefferson is the Don Corleone of American history. <laughs> uh, he's not a, he's certainly not a murderous thug or uh, a gangster by any means, but Boy, he could get people to do anything, 
And rarely was there a paper trail that would trace it back in case it was something mm -hmm. that you could get into Dutch with. But, uh, but Monroe was a very willing acolyte. It gets interesting towards the end of their relationship when Monroe is uh, Secretary of State and more with everything that's gone on in 1814, the disaster of Bladensburg, the burning of Washington. And uh, when Madison asks Monroe to be both the uh, Secretary of State and Secretary of War, he starts expanding powers that uh, are something that Jefferson is far beyond the realm of a Jeffersonian Republican. And he's a bit surprised because Monroe was more of a Jeffersonian a lot of times than Jefferson was. They, they continue their relationship. He continues to seek Jefferson's advice. And I often wondered if one of the happiest moments in Monroe's public life was getting a letter from Thomas Jefferson after he has sent him the pro forma of what becomes the Monroe Doctrine. And Jefferson writes this wonderful letter back, but it, he sums it up in one sentence to Mon Monroe. This sets our compass. Mm -hmm. And uh, you wonder how big of a grin Monroe <laughs> must have felt, even as a yeah. You know, in his 60s, you know, the, my mentor just said, nice job. <laughs> and so that's that's how they that's how they existed together. Well, let's step back in time from that back to the, uh, the ratification debates. And that was one thing that surprised me in the book is that Monroe, during those debates, came out against the Constitution as written, even though he had seen the ineffectiveness of the Articles of Confederation. What explains that initial opposition of Monroe to the new system of government? That's a good question, Alan, because he really is an ardent advocate for getting rid of the Articles of Confederation. Uh, he has personally seen in his attempts to try to uh, uh, acquire the Mississippi for the United States. And in his, uh, he, he takes a tour by himself up through New York to see, you know, part of the country he's never been to before. And he really sees firsthand the limitations on what Congress can do and how the bylaws are set up. But at the same time, he's a little miffed that he's not invited to join Madison and other Virginians at the Constitution Convention. And Madison tactfully explains, you just got married. You don't have any money. Nobody's getting paid to be in Philadelphia. The inflation is still running rampant. You'd be broke in two weeks. And then he's a little chafed that Madison can't comment on what's going on behind closed doors at Independence Hall. But when it uh, turns out that the Constitution has been approved by the convention, but there's no Bill of Rights, that is what uh, pushes him the other way. He says uh, at some point, I am always a decided and warm friend to a Bill of Rights. With that in mind, the leading opponent to the Constitution of Virginia is Patrick Henry. And he looks at Monroe and says, geez, you know, nice looking guy, war hero, he's not even 30 yet. Let's make him the front person for our campaign of resistance. And uh, and he plays Monroe pretty well, but Monroe's, again, an enthusiastic uh, participant. He writes and, and gets into debates on all of the articles. But the one I found the most interesting, especially in the last five years, is his argument about what's happening with a president if they're caught in wrongdoing. He says, let us now consider the responsibility of the president. He is elected for four years and not excluded from re-election. Suppose he violates the laws and constitution or commits high crimes. By whom is he tried? By his own counsel? By those who advise him to commit such violations and crimes? 
this subverts the principles of justice. Will not this be an inducement to foreign nations to use their arts and intrigue to corrupt him or his counselors? If he and his counselors can escape punishment with so much facility, what a delightful prospect must it be for a foreign nation? And this is him talking about 180 years before Putin and McCartney wrote back in the USSR. So it shows a, a, a pretty perceptive uh, approach to the Constitution and its uh, foibles. So you, you mentioned earlier, Monroe, with that, that friendship with Jefferson was asked to be part of the team that ended up negotiating the Louisiana Purchase. Can you give us perhaps a, more specifics on, on what Monroe contributed to that effort with the French? Sure. Monroe had been a successful governor. There were one-year terms. Uh, he did three of, of Virginia. So he's back a little bit in public life. And uh, a fellow who he had been befriended, Robert Livingston from New York, has been in Paris trying to negotiate the acquisition of New Orleans. That's it, just New Orleans. And he writes, he corresponds with Monroe and says to him, you know, this isn't the Paris that you would remember. The intrigues and everything else are, are worse than they even were back then. It's just not a not a good time to be here, but when Jefferson makes his entreaty to, you know, come, uh, he crosses the Atlantic again with his wife and young daughters. Uh, he is heading towards Paris when uh, Bonaparte tells uh, his advisors, "I renounce all of Louisiana," and one of his uh, top politicians, uh, who's well well known for his intrigue and love of it, Talleyrand meets with Livingston and says, what if we give you all of Louisiana? <laughs> and Livingston is just gobsmacked. And, he, and and at first he says, I don't know, let me get back to you. <laughs> but after waking up probably in the middle of that going, what was I right. thinking? You know, he, he saw, now I'm going to make right. the deal of the century. And, <laughs> you know, and the last thing he wants to see show up is Monroe, who's supposed to supersede him technically, and getting the deal done. And Monroe has a harder time dealing with Livingston than he does with uh, Fleet Marbois uh, and Talleyrand. And it, it really gets to, it, it really starts to drive him crazy. Uh, Livingston starts writing letters back to Jefferson saying, you know, oh, Monroe was, I saw him once. I haven't seen him since. I'm, I'm doing all these things. Ooh. And Livingston, or Monroe finally calls Livingston on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, helps to you know get the deal through. They're never friendly again. But uh, Monroe, is, you know, asserted throughout that he was not looking for any credit, glory, or political capital. This is Jefferson's victory. This is Jefferson's accomplishment. And at the same time, though, as far as Livingston's concerned in his own political career, he wants to make sure that he gets some recognition, you know, for what what he did and how he helped put it together. I've always wondered, wouldn't it have been great if Livingston had looked at Talleyrand and said, if you throw in Normandy, you got a deal. That would have been great. <laughs> that would have been perfect, but maybe a, maybe a bit well, of a stretch. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, it, it depends on where you're from. Normandy would be fine. I'm sure if uh, there's history buffs in Hollywood, they'd have preferred Cobb. Right, right, and, you know, right. we, <laughs> well, that's just our start. No, here, right? no, no. You know, we can make uh, a Caddyshack, the con film of the year. <laughs> right, or something right. like that. 
<laughs> well, it, it should have been, but that's another that's another episode. So, so yeah, let's save that for the next presentation. Now, now, if you're going to bring up as a Caddyshack or Animal House, this just changes everything. <laughs> right, right. Although, come to think of it, both titles apply to our politics today. So. You, you mentioned earlier also the War of eighteen twelve and the really amazing role, and again, your book tells it so well of of Monroe in that war. Can you t tell our listeners, kind of summarize what he did? And I was wondering throughout how in the world would Madison have put out any form of victory without the, the efforts of Monroe? Well, that's, a, that's a, another good question, Alan. I think to, to start right off, Monroe was one of the uh, supporters of going to war with Great Britain uh, over the issues of impressment and the other economic uh, issues with trade and uh, things that he still bore resentment for. You know, he... Monroe's still carrying that Hessian bullet all his life. And he feels, and he mentions in a couple of discussions and, and letters that, you know, Great Britain is so caught up in battling Napoleon in Europe that uh, they won't be able to, you know, we should have a decent chance of, of winning this. And what the, obviously, as you guys know, what the first couple of years of the War of 1812 proved was that the British weren't or could beat the Americans or or hold them at bay with both hands tied behind their back. Monroe is watching this and stepping back and where this this isn't going very well. He had aspirations of being one of the generals to lead the army, and he lost out on that in the political uh, uh, machinations of uh, Madison's Secretary of War, John Armstrong, who thirty years earlier had been with General Gates in what they called the Newburgh conspiracy up in New Jersey at the uh, in the end of the revolution against Washington. Armstrong knows who the most indispensable man in the United States is, and it's himself. And he also sees his role as Secretary of War as a chance to succeed Madison. So both of these guys don't like each other because they both have enough ego for what their roles are in state and the War Department. And at the same time, they both have it in their heads that they're going to be the one that succeeds Madison in 1816. But where things really start to fall apart is in 1813, there's a British squadron that shows up uh, coming up the Chesapeake and uh, getting around Maryland. Monroe, who's now 58 years old, leads a detachment of dragoons on a reconnaissance mission. Hardly qualifications. Uh, it's hard to even depict a, a service uh, serviceman like Mike Pompeo being on a horse in his age, you know, riding up and down Maryland, let alone Hillary Clinton or Madeleine Albright. That one turns out to be a false alarm. A subsequent arrival of British forces in 1814, Monroe does the same thing. And he says, they're coming to Washington. Armstrong, why would they come here? It's the capital, but that's nothing. They'll go to Philadelphia. They'll go to Baltimore. They'll go to Charleston or New Orleans. But they're not going not gonna to come to Washington. You have my personal guarantee. Yeah. Well, as we all know, they showed up much stronger in numbers, if not in capabilities, force of American militia uh, defeated, routed at Bladensburg. And uh, they march into uh, Washington later that night and uh, torch the government buildings. They're very concerned not to torch people's houses. Monroe is at Bladensburg. In fact, at one point, he rearranges a line of defense and, and actually makes a, a bad situation worse. He, he totally misreads the ground. But uh, he's among the last of uh, the 
patriotic Americans to leave Washington. He's leaving just as the skirmish lines are coming in with their torches in hand. And uh, after Washington burns and Madison and his cabinet return from wherever they had fled to, Armstrong says, I might go up to New York to visit my family. And Madison says, good idea, because even the troops want to take him apart. <laughs> and he resigns the war, his uh, commission, his, uh, his appointment in Baltimore on his way up. Madison immediately turns to Monroe and he agrees to do it. And for a couple of months, if we've had a dictator, it's probably Monroe. He's immediately reorganizing the army and preparations for the Delaware or the Baltimore defenses. When General Winder, who was a commander at Bladensburg, is saying, I'm from Maryland. I want to be the one that's in charge of Baltimore. Samuel Smith has already taken that job, and he's very capable. He was the commander as a very young man of Fort Mifflin when the British invaded Philadelphia in 1777. And Monroe says, thanks for your offer, but this is Smith's job. He reaches out to the banks. He reaches out to rich Americans like John Jacob Astor to get money because the treasury's dead broke. And he also sends a missive to Andrew Jackson in Mobile to get himself and his troops to New Orleans, unaware that Jackson being Jackson is in Pensacola on a raid he wanted to do. But gets <laughs> uh, Jackson's uh, Monroe's uh, information time to be in New Orleans at exactly the right time. So he's he's I think you're right. He's invaluable, especially in the last uh, year of the war. But even what's more important to me, Alan, is that this is a man who's learned who learns his lessons, even if they come at him the hard way. He had been an advocate for the war. He saw how egregiously unprepared the United States was for it. And he starts making plans and putting in their effect policies to make sure this doesn't happen again. Uh, we we're talking about Jefferson and their relationship. He informs Jefferson of the plans he's looking to do. He's telling him our finances are in a deplorable state. The country is consisting of the best materials in the world. People are patriotic and virtuous, but we're losing this war because we're not conducting it and we have neither the money or in the treasury or credit. And Jefferson doesn't like at all what he's saying, but he appeals to Monroe's situation on his political survival. He says, going into this, if you fail, you're done. And Jefferson, or Monroe's reply is basically, well, if that's the case, so be it. And he starts making changes. Gary Hart in his uh, biography of Monroe called him our first national security president. And mm. this is where he, he starts to embark on that path. Well, on the hills of those successes of Monroe in the War of 1812, he's elected president in 1816. Why are the two terms he served as president often called the era of good feelings, despite the fact that, as you show, political infighting continued during those years? It's a good question. It's, it's one of those things, I guess, like that last line or one of the last lines in The Man Who Shot Liberty <laughs> Ballots, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. See, right. <laughs> the era of good feelings rightly can pertain to the first couple of years of Monroe's eight years in the presidency, but the panic of 1819 certainly ends any era of good feelings. But Monroe gets comes into the presidency at a, a very interesting time in our history and a very rare one. You know, we haven't won the War of 1812, but we have survived it. 
you know, basically a treaty of Ghent says, we're just going to go back to our neutral corners and that's how we're going to end this war. But there's a, an undercurrent of optimism about, hey, we're still here. We're still a country that coincides with westward expansion. And Monroe is looking at this as a, as a chance to really, you know, try to end partisanship, which is something for him because he'd been such an uber partisan. If he had been, a, uh, if we had TV back in those days while he was a congressman, governor, or senator, he'd have been on MSNBC or Fox News every damn night. <laughs> it, that, that was who he was. But he's now taking a uh, looking at what to do. And he makes a very famous uh, comment that the uh, chief magistrate of the country should not be in charge of a party. And he takes some of the best Federalist ideas, and he certainly recruits Federalist voters and some of the lower members of the in, in rank, but he doesn't take any Federalist leaders with him, like his old friend and defeated presidential rival, Rufus King. But he, he looks at how he can weld the best ideas of both the Jeffersonian Republicans and the Federalists and move forward with being able to, you know, do more things for the country. And he comes pretty close. I'd say he he pretty much ends partisanship for the most part, except for different issues, until he's reelected president again. The legend is that some uh, voter cast the only lone electoral vote because he thought that Washington should be the only president to receive unanimous electoral votes. It actually was a New England uh politician named Plumer who didn't like Monroe at all. <laughs> he cast his, I think he cast his vote for John Quincy Adams ah. as soon as Monroe has won. And then the other thing I found so interesting is when you'd say, oh my God, he won, you know, without any kind of opposition. The voter turnout was worse than we see in a bad year in the last 50 years. It was in some cases like 10% because everybody's always going to win yeah. and it's raining or whatever. But, uh, He's no sooner reelected than the partisanship comes back. He's got Clay and Andrew Jackson running outside of his own cabinet. And at one point, he has four of his cabinet members uh, seriously running for president. His secretary of the Navy realizes he's not going to make it. And he winds up being the only Supreme Court uh, appointment Monroe <laughs> gets in eight years. Wow. But three of his other members, Quincy Adams, John Calhoun, and uh, William Crawford, mm -hmm. Uh, Secretary Treasury are, are doing everything they can, you know, some not as subtly as others to get the nomination from the Republicans. Of course, in the political atmosphere at that time, you're seeing the disintegration of the Federalist Party post War of 1812. So tell us, when, when Monroe's in office, he takes these long tours of the nation, which had to be difficult on him. Where did he go and why did he take those those journeys? He looked at that as an opportunity to really, you know, see the country, but he also knew what it would engender. And uh, we always talk about or read about, uh, especially Washington and Jefferson, that these men were incredibly image conscious that, you know, Washington was going to be the combination of Cincinnatus and King Arthur. Jefferson did everything he could prove that, you know, he was just a, a good old boy who happened to own a lot of enslaved persons at a very uh, wealthy plantation. But Monroe, even his outfit, guys, is, is, is image conscious. He's, he has a dark blue jacket and a uh, 
uh, tan waistcoat and breeches. And he wears a, a, a hat called a chapeau bras, which is as close as he can get to a tri-corner hat. It, they look, they're sort of a portable version of the uh, British naval captain's uh, hat that uh, Russell Crowe wore in Master and Commander uh, for people trying to figure out what it looked like. And he knows, he, he is going to cities and villages and the closest thing he can come up with to a Continental Navy uniform. And uh, he's also looking forward to, you know, this first trip, which is all through the north. He goes from uh, Washington up into Maine and then over to Michigan and Ohio before he comes back to Pennsylvania. His former amanuensis, uh, Nicholas Spittle, who becomes a very good businessman and politician in his own right, writes a letter right before Monroe takes off. He says, ever since the time of General Washington, the president has unfortunately appeared to the nation as much the chief clerk of Congress, a cabinet man stationary at his desk, relying exclusively on secretaries and invisible, except to those who see him. He called Monroe's plan admirable, and it, Monroe—it's—it's it's a, it's a hit. It's, mm -hmm. It would—it would almost be, in terms of his personality and how he approached things, pictured George H. W. Bush going on tour uh, around the country and getting crowds that you would see at a Stones concert. Mm -hmm. It's that deep and that respectful, and he—he—he he, uh, he uses the opportunities brilliantly. You know, he's very, he doesn't speak much at the public affairs. He, he's very quiet and trying to be, uh, you know, decent with everything. But you, you read about some of the newspapers and their captions of him silhouetted in the sunlight if he arrives late in the day. And just the people are almost in tears, you know, and, and in that outfit and standing ramrod straight as he did. How many family members are looking at him and go, he reminds me of dad. He reminds me of, my husband, he's my younger brother that did not come back. You know, he, he hits such an emotional bell with this. Mm -hmm. And it's actually in Boston, which is still one of the last hives of federalism, where uh, the Boston uh, newspaper, the uh, Columbian Sentinel, uh, has a headline, Error of Good Feelings. During the late presidential jubilee, many persons have met as festive boards and pleasant converse whom party politics had long severed. We recur with pleasure to all circumstances which attend the demonstrations of good feelings. It's exactly what Monroe wanted, and he got it. You mentioned Andrew Jackson earlier. I was in, at the Hermitage not long ago. I've been there many times in my life. We did an episode of American POTUS at the Hermitage. Interesting man for sure in so many ways. He was sent, Andrew Jackson was sent by President Monroe to fight the Seminoles, but of course, in typical Andrew Jackson fashion, ended up taking Florida from Spain, and in the process, he had executed two British citizens. Do you, do you believe Monroe, Monroe secretly knew and approved of Jackson's seizure of Florida, or was that a surprise to him? And how did Monroe and Adams handle what became a really difficult diplomatic situation? Now, there's a great question, and it's certainly one of the times where Jefferson's comment about there's not a mark on Monroe's soul mm -hmm. would be belied. Mm -hmm. Monroe has lusted after Florida since he was uh, in Europe after the Louisiana Purchase. You know, it's just sitting there waiting. And he actually makes a, a very arduous trek over the Pyrenees in a mule train 
to go meet with the Spanish government and appeal to them to, you know, how much money do you want for Florida? And uh, doesn't get anywhere with it. He At first, he's not going to send Jackson. He has uh, someone else in mind, and uh, he's thinking that's the thing to do. He knows he already had dealt with Jackson with New Orleans. In fact, supplies Monroe ordered to be sent to New Orleans for Jackson's uh, forces never arrive. And Jackson makes a point publicly to say, where were they from the war secretary, Monroe? And Monroe wisely decides, this is the hero of the hour. I'm not going to get in a fight with him saying, I sent all those munitions to you, just didn't get them. There's a funny letter, Alan, though, when he's putting his cabinet together and he's got Adams as his secretary of state. And Monroe shares with him that he thought about asking Jackson to serve as a minister to Russia. And he sought Jefferson's opinion. Jefferson writes back, why, good God, <laughs> he would breed you a quarrel before he had been there a month. <laughs> so, so instead of doing that in Russia, he did it in Florida. Um, and he creates, as he does his whole life, more, more teapots uh, full of tempests than one could ask for. And it gets into a fight with Monroe's cabinet. John Calhoun, no fan of Jackson's and who probably views him as a Southern rival for the presidency somewhere down the road, once uh, excoriates Jackson in the cabinet meetings and wants Monroe to call him on the carpet. John Quincy Adams, however, as Secretary of State, is, hey, hold on, he did, in a way, he did exactly what we wanted. And in fact, uh, at one point, Jackson, before he goes, says to Monroe, that's his letter say, as the arms of the United States must be carried to any point within the limits of East Florida, where an enemy is permitted and protected or disgrace attends, he'll take care of it. Hmm. But he also says, realizing he's, it's a not much of a diplomatic mission, let it be signified to me through any channel. And he suggests another congressman named Ray, you guys probably heard of it, maybe our audience hasn't that the possession of the Floridas will be desirable to the United States, and in 60 days it will be accomplished. And that letter back and forth and Monroe's lack of answering it kind of haunts him both personally and yeah. publicly uh, through the rest of his time. But it's uh, Adams and Monroe who get the upper hand. You know, we'll tell him, you really shouldn't have done all this, and we'll send a letter and, and say that in public. But in the meantime... We're not going to punish him. We're not going to uh, uh, say we're removing him from any commands. We're not doing any of that stuff. He got us what we wanted. And Adams uses what happens very capably in negotiation with Luis Onis mm -hmm. and uh, the Spanish government. It takes them a couple of years, but uh, it happens. Monroe uh, does wind up getting Florida. We certainly were not going to get Florida back. Uh, not lately. <laughs> That's right. Now, Monroe and Adams, you say in the book that relationship, I think the quote is one of the most consequential relationships in American history. Can you just remind our listeners about the Monroe Doctrine, what that was, and why it was so important then and why it continues to be important today? Sure. And that's a, another good one to raise. Let me start, if I can, by saying that Monroe's relationship with John Adams was terrible. Mm. In fact, when he returns, Adams has ascended to the presidency and, and Monroe's been recalled from France in disgrace. And Adams makes a point to calling him the disgraced minister. When Monroe becomes governor, Adams sends him a letter in 1800 that he's planning on coming to visit Virginia. And as such, it's a 
requirement for Monroe to welcome officially the president of the United States. He sends a letter back, and I'm surmising, but he basically says, uh, you might be coming to my backyard, but you're not being invited to the barbecue. <laughs> uh, and Adams does not come. So they've had this bristling relationship. And then in 1811, when Monroe is made Secretary of State, he gets a, shouldn't call it fawning, but let's call it fawning, letter from John Adams congratulating him and wishing him all the best in this new step in his career, the great things he's going to do. And my son, John Quincy, will be reporting to you, and he will certainly be, you know, a loyal officer to what you, you wish to do which is basically saying, let's see, Jefferson, Madison, and probably Monroe will be the next president, but the other two guys made it. So if I can get Quincy the job, then he'll succeed Monroe if Monroe gets it. And rather, I'm sure he saw through that, but, but Monroe writes a very nice letter back. There's a beautiful letter from uh, Abigail Adams during the War of 1812 and 1813 when she writes Monroe that she and her husband are old and, and firm, and they're not going to be around much longer. And is there any chance that Monroe can work some magic to get Quincy Adams, who's the minister to the czar in Russia, home? And Monroe writes an equally kind letter back saying, we'll do whatever we can. Keep me posted as to your health. But right now, his services aren't valuable. The czar was at that point trying to intercede to end the mm -hmm. war. But he's Quincy Adams is more than qualified to be the Secretary of State. They never become close friends. They're very polite with each other. They spend an inordinate amount of time together. Adams, like many people, thought that Monroe was uh, not the brightest bulb in the box. And uh, when your two best friends are Jefferson and Madison, yeah. you don't stand much chance <laughs> right. of getting that title. And yet Monroe is thought of by everybody is probably one of the wisest presidents. And certainly in, uh, John Calhoun remarks about, I, I never met a man with better judgment, a visitor to Monticello when the three uh, Virginians are there. He talks about, uh, it's obvious that Jefferson has the best brain, Madison has the best legal knowledge, but Monroe is the best judge of things. Mm -hmm. And uh, Quincy Adams comes to see that too. They really give each other the leeway to disagree. And Adams comes away really saying he learned an awful lot from Monroe to how to look at a problem and how to resolve it and when to address it. And uh, he calls, uh, Monroe starts his cabinet meetings with what uh, Adams calls his civil and leaves. It's basically like, you know, we sit down at a meeting and take a, a legal pad and draw a line down the middle. And here's the agenda and here's the comments. And, uh, he doesn't do much talking. You know, it's mostly Adams and Crawford and Calhoun and Wirt, you know, whoever taking it. But at the end, it's based on Monroe's questions. Henry Clay's been after Monroe to recognize the South American republics since 1817. And Monroe is very friendly in his policies and everything else, but he's not ready to do so. And finally, by 1822, 1823, he decides the time is right. The, the Napoleonic Wars are long over, and it's time for us to do this. Are we strong enough to support, you know, the, the promise that if European countries, you know, come back to the New World to colonize, we're going to fight mm -hmm. you? 
Maybe, maybe not. But the one thing he knows he has is the backing of the British government and more importantly, the, the Royal Navy. In a speech President Kennedy made, he makes a point of talking about when it's the right time to move. And he used the Monroe Doctrine as an example of Monroe knew that the country would be behind the decision and that the British Navy would be on the uh, in the Atlantic and Pacific to see that it was carried yes. out. It's a very great combination of both of what they want to do. Adams had done a Fourth of July speech in 1821 where he describes American, the American government that she goes not in uh, a search for uh, enemies to destroy mm -hmm. or monsters to mm -hmm. destroy. Mm -hmm. And uh, Monroe's said more or less the same thing for years. So it's a really nice symbiotic relationship. Yeah. They're an awful lot like Harry Truman and George Marshall. Mm -hmm. And I would say, in, in fairness, that you could compare them also to uh, George H.W. Bush and Jim Baker. Granted, those two were life, were great friends mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. Baker even got involved yeah. with Bush's politics. But they, but proof in the pudding, just to jump, I know Reagan always gets credit of the man who ended the Cold War. I think the president at that time was H.W. Bush. And he handled the end of the Soviet Union like an orchestra conductor. I mean, that should be something that should be uh, required reading for any political student. And the same goes with the Monroe Doctrine. And our good friend Jeff Engel was on an early episode of American POTUS talking about that very you. topic. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so let's uh, – you, you mentioned monsters to destroy. Certainly horrible issue, a monster that needed to be destroyed in America was slavery. And you state that Monroe and Jefferson and Madison, they felt, quote, slavery was evil in theory, but a necessity both in practice and in lifestyle, unquote. How could these really smart men balance two such contradictory sets of beliefs? Well, to be honest with you, Alan, the most honest answer for me is I don't mm -hmm. know. How do you go to say all men are created equal, yeah. not some men, but all men are created equal? And, 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 and it's a world we just were 200 years or more removed from. Ironically, I think Calhoun said it best to John Quincy Adams when they were uh, finally brought into the discussions of the Missouri Compromise. Monroe was kept them out of it while he was being, you know, the, the test run for how would Lyndon Johnson resolve problems. But one of their walks home after an argument where Adams says in the cabinet, you Virginians as presidents, take your lead from Thomas Jefferson's line all men are created equal. And this compromise is not doing that. It's not even bringing us close to living up to that. And while they're walking back, Calhoun says, well, you know, Quince, Southerners like us, we believe all men are created equal. But when we say that, we mean all white men. And it's, it's something that is so obvious to us through our history. But here's somebody actually went out and said it. And it's in uh, Quincy Adams' diaries. Mm -hmm. I don't understand it. And in fact, when you look at their approach to things, Monroe is the only founding father who as governor had to execute enslaved men that rebelled against the Virginia government and Gabriel's rebellion. At the, at the same time that this rebellion's occurring, his only son, who's one years old, is dying probably of Cooper diphtheria. And, and, Monroe's in anguish over this. Uh, if it weren't for a severe thunderstorm, Gabriel was a blacksmith. Mm -hmm. 
who had been branded for attacking an overseer. And uh, his owner had pretty much set him up with his own blacksmith shop in, in Richmond uh, for him to return every day. And of course, collect the money that Gabriel was getting for him uh, as a smithy. And Gabriel establishes this almost uh, Spartacus-like network on plantations. And on this one given night in August of uh, 1800, here we go. This is this is what we're going to do. And a terrific thunderstorm keeps them from getting off their plantations. And two of the enslaved men that are part of it rat them out. In fact, uh, Gabriel's rebellion frees two enslaved men, and it's those two gentlemen. But as they're captured, Monroe really is is going through the difficulties of what to what to say, what to do, how how can we get this this issue resolved? And he's has begun executing the ringleaders, and uh, he basically says to in a plaintive letter to to Jefferson, what can we do? We can't send them to the territories. We we can't not. Uh, how do we say whether mercy or severity is the better policy in this case? And before Monroe closed, he asked the question at the heart of his inner agonizing debate, where to arrest the hand of the executioner? You know, basically saying to Jefferson, when do I stop myself from this? It's all, And the letter almost reads like it's a combination of Abraham Lincoln and Pontius Pilate mm. and Hamlet. Mm. And, and uh, Jefferson's answer arrives a week later, and he starts, where to stay the hand of the executioner is an important question, but he basically says it's the, you know, the presidential campaign has started. I think you should stop now. I'm paraphrasing because I might start losing votes. And, uh, and Monroe does. Uh, later, in a very interesting incident as a lawyer, and he's in private life, he represents an enslaved man named Daniel who was attacked in uh, Albemarle by two plantation owners, one of whom is Thomas Jefferson Jr., the son of the ex-president's brother Randolph. And Monroe takes this man to court, uh, these men to court for beating this man. And, you know, 19 months later, the case is tried and the jury awarded Monroe $20. He thought the sum was immaterial. He said, I want no money. But he says in his declaration of the satisfied with the case, he says, the God who made us made the black people and they ought not to be treated with barbarity. He's saying that believing that he's certainly an example of that. You know, he's not a vindictive owner. He's not, you know, anything at all like that. But as, as my wife kept pointing out, an English major, so it's the best in-house editor you could ever have. <laughs> I don't know how many times I got a page back from her where she wrote "land the plane," but one of the uh, <laughs> one of the things uh, that she kept bringing up with this and saying you you don't get too friendly with this guy. The bottom line is he owned people, and uh, I think Sarah Bond Harper, who uh, is in charge of his Highland estate, in a conversation with her, you know, some things up rather pointedly that when Monroe had money. He bought slaves when he needed money. He sold them. You reminded me earlier, you mentioned Lincoln, and I'm going to butcher the, the quote from him. But at one point in talking about all men are created equal, he said, all, we're told all men are created equal except black men. And then we had except Germans, except Irish, except Catholics. Hmm. And he said, uh, 
know, if that's going to be the case here, I'd rather be in Russia where the despotism is without hypocrisy. It's just pure and in your face. Well, what a, another comment from one of our uh, beloved presidents during the uh, Missouri Compromise. He's writing a letter to uh, to someone about running a plantation. And he says, I know no error more consuming to an estate than that of stocking farms with men almost exclusively. I consider a woman who brings a child every two years is more profitable than the best man of the farm. What she produces is an addition to capital while his labors disappear in mere consumption. And the same man who wrote that is the man who wrote All Men Are Created. Yeah, just amazing. You, you mentioned Missouri Compromise. I definitely want to talk to you. What role did President Monroe have in helping craft that Missouri Compromise? Well, he's technically not allowed to have a hand in it at all, as, 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 as you fellows know, and most of your audience, I'm sure, knows. You know, the presidency isn't toothless, but it certainly isn't where he can take an active role in domestic affairs. But the fact that the debate in Congress and in the states is so inflamed, uh, it, it's at this point where Jefferson writes another famous comment about slavery. You know, we have the wolf by the ears and we can either hold on to him or let him go. But when it looks like there's serious talk that this could dissolve the union and 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 dissolve it with bloodshed. So Monroe decides to, as I said, take almost an LBJ approach to to this this issue. He reaches out to people who he know will keep his confidence. And he starts talking to the leaders for compromise on both sides, north and south. And whether it's uh, bringing a freshman congressman through the back door of the White House and having dinner or just saying, you know, I'm keeping my eye on you. I, I hope you'll support this compromise. Uh, he, he is handing out to uh, his son-in-law, George Hay in Virginia and Martin Van Buren in New York, patronage and and other stimulants, almost like candy, to win over, not so much if they can't win somebody over, just have them maintain their silence. And uh, when word gets out that he's doing this, he, he regrets it. Uh, it's certainly playing at the same time where Virginia's nominating convention for president. And they're thinking, well, if he's going to not allow slavery to expand, then we should pick another candidate. And so Again, there's a great bit of duplicity in Monroe with this. He desperately wants this compromise, but he can't put his his fingerprints on it. And at the same time, he doesn't want to have trouble in his backyard in Virginia. And John Marshall, who is a federal last of the Federalists, comes to his assistance saying, the best thing we can do here is whatever, however Congress can work this out. But he really shows, uh, again, he was a very savvy politician. And probably the Missouri Compromise, which we consider historically 200 years later as kicking the Civil War down the road for decades, uh, was really quite an accomplishment for him. Uh, he had to be unsung about it. He couldn't say, hey, look what I did. But he had a very strong hand in it. And it's Quincy Adams, again, in his diaries, when it's all done, who says, I wonder if we did the right thing. Mm. I wonder if we shouldn't have just had a Civil War right now. Mm. And just settle this thing. But uh, as we know, that's not what happened.
So we've covered a lot of ground talking about Monroe's political career, but now let's lighten things up a little bit. I want to know more about his personal side, okay? Sure. So he may have been our first president to participate in a photobomb <laughs> 75 years after Washington's Christmas night crossing of the oh, Delaware River, goodness. the painting we all know today was created. You, you talked about Monroe being part of the attack earlier. So the mm -hmm. story goes that was actually Monroe holding the American flag right behind Washington in the painting. Is that true? Wouldn't that be a paint bomb or a painting bomb? A painting bomb, yeah. <laughs> right. I would think, a, yeah, you could you could say oil bomb, but then it takes the whole time <laughs> you know, another way. Uh, everything you described in that painting is correct. So that is him. That is him, and that's him holding an American flag, and they are in the boat with, with George. And all of that is true. As long as we're talking about the painting. Right. As we said, you know, Monroe departed hours before Washington crossed. And uh, and while we did have a flag, it wasn't that one. That that that, that comes a couple of years later. You know, it, it's it's, you know, correct in every detail, Alan and Scott. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> All right, there you go. Okay. <laughs> So oddly enough, revolutionary patriot Monroe actually married someone from a household that leaned a little toward helping the crown. So how did these two get together? Oh, it's a terrific story. By, you know, by this point, the, the government is up in New York and uh, Monroe's a congressman, 27 years old, I guess, when he meets the 17-year-old Elizabeth Courtright. Her father was a very successful merchant. He actually had a hand in some privateers in the French and Indian War. And uh, he had a house called the Sycamore, which is right down this near Wall Street, near the Federal Building, near Francis Tavern. And he has four very beautiful daughters. And so they were almost sort of like the uh, Schuyler sisters. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, young Rufus King sends a letter to uh, Monroe, who was already smitten by Elizabeth, while he's in Virginia saying, you know, we were at the opera and uh, all the men were swarming over the Courtright sisters and hence that he was one of them and uh, which doesn't make Monroe too happy. In fact, Elizabeth's friends are saying to her, you can do a lot better. I mean, <laughs> he's a nice looking guy, but he's not that good looking. He's a congressman, but he's not a very important one. You know, he doesn't seem to have any money. He's always wearing the same suit, you know, at the, whatever. But they fall hard for each other. It's one of the great marriages in, the, in, uh, in our presidencies. He is absolutely, totally in love with her. And uh, she's very well-educated, apparently quite the pianist. She spoke languages. Uh, if you look at her picture, she's, she's beautiful. She looks like a goddess. At the same time, she's not overly outgoing. At one point, she's heading to her new home in Virginia after Congress is over. Monroe buys a chariot, not the Charlton Heston variety, but one that can seat a driver and two people. And for company, she has James Madison, who everybody said talked in a whisper. Well, they're bumping over roads, in a court, and, and Elizabeth is very pregnant. And, of course, Madison and Monroe are shouting back and forth politics in between saying, how you doing, Liz? Are you OK? And uh, probably no one. Washington had a wonderful reputation as being the consummate host at Mount Vernon. But I'll bet nobody in his life was happier to see Mount Vernon and uh, General Washington than the very expectant Elizabeth Monroe. He 
And there's documentation how he arranged to have a bath drawn for her, have her own room. You know, you can eat your meals in the, you know, while we talk politics and everything else. But uh, uh, later on, uh, while Monroe is minister to uh, France and just arrives, the reign of terror is still eating its own. Among uh, the people in prison are Tom Paine and Lafayette's wife, uh, Adrienne. And Monroe does everything he can think of to get them out of prison. But he knows that as a dignitary, he can't go visit uh, Adrienne mm. uh, in her cell, which is actually part of an old hotel. And her mother and sisters have already been beheaded. So Elizabeth, who's all of like 25 years old, gets the carriage all cleaned up, gets in her best finery and gets a basket of fresh bread and fruits and wine and goes through the streets of Paris to go see Adrienne Lafayette. And it's the first step that's taken to get her uh, released. The French call Elizabeth La Belle Americaine for how beautiful she is and her class and dignity. And if there is a first lady that really is cut from her cloth, it's, it's, it's clearly Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, who was equally well-educated, equally cultured. Mrs. Kennedy had quite an admiration for the furniture that the Monroes brought to the White House and had it you know, put in place and restored. And then again, also showed her own great courage those four days in November when she pretty much held not just the country, but the whole world together. So that's uh, that would be my closest. Ironically, the Monroes and Madisons are friends, except for a couple of years of falling out after Monroe returns from his second trip to uh, France. And there's a charming couple of stories where uh, while Monroe's in Virginia, he asks Madison to look into some furniture for him and his newly married spouse. And Madison proves that as a furniture buyer, he is one hell of a legislator. One of Monroe's sisters says, the, the, it, she gives it a word, that the furniture he's chosen is vile. <laughs> so when, when the Monroes are in France, James Madison has fallen in love with Dolly, and they get married, and he asks... The mod, he, he writes a letter saying, you know, could you help us pick out furniture, furniture and some furnishings? And he not so subtly says it would be very helpful if Elizabeth has a hand in the selections. And it's almost right up there with the first five minutes of the movie Jaws when Roy Scheider says to the young cop, let Polly do the printing. There's, you know, the, and apparently Elizabeth did a great job because there's no comments about what they got. They stay close friends, you know, except for those two years. But how do you follow Dolly Madison? Yeah, yeah. And I think the answer was you, you follow her with with the, the first lady's, uh, the founding first lady's version of Jacqueline Kennedy. Uh, she was very well respected and regarded. Same can't be said for their oldest daughter, who was uh, a, a pretty much an obnoxious snob. But Elizabeth, uh, and she also doesn't try to copy Dolly. She has very dignified dinners. These, she rolls things back a little bit. Things aren't as boisterous as they were. It's it's sort of like following uh, Joan Rivers with Meryl Streep, you know. But she's she's a remarkable lady. And the sad thing is that there's only a couple of her letters that exist. But everybody writes about her and talks about how pretty she is, how smart she is. There's a scene late in the presidency when 
partisanship has run amok and Monroe's being investigated by Congress. We gave you all this money to furnish the White House. Did you really use it for that? And so forth, just as the first Unitarian Church has got an organ and they're having an oratorio. And it's not so much said, this is was pretty much surmise on my part, but you know, you, you spend years with these people, you feel like you get to know them. But Quincy Adams notes in his diary that President and Mrs. Monroe attend this premiere and sit in the front row. And it's almost her, I, you can almost see her just saying to him, they're not gonna bully us. They're not gonna yeah. keep us hiding in the house. That's the kind of lady oh, she was. Impressive. So Tim, you touched on this just a second ago. The whole of Eliza. Fans of the Broadway musical Hamilton will be familiar with Eliza, Alexander Hamilton's wife. Now, she had a bit of an awkward run-in with President Monroe after he was president. Is that right? Yes. Hamilton and Monroe met uh, while they were uh, aides uh, aide the camps for Washington and Lord Sterling. They're friendly, but not close friends. Uh, at one point, when John Lawrence, another of Washington's aides, uh, has the idea of, of going to South Carolina, asks Washington's permission to see if he can actually enlist an, uh, a regiment of enslaved African men from South Carolina with the promise that if they join and fight, they will be freed after the war. Washington's like, well, good luck with that. And of course, the South Carolinian uh, Assembly wants nothing to do with that. But Monroe volunteers to serve as an officer if that comes to permission. And Hamilton writes, you know, something that Lawrence was in South Carolina, that our friend Monroe is interested in your interesting affair. But by the time they're in politics, they're completely on opposite sides. Obviously, Hamilton, the arch Federalist, the Federalist, and Monroe in the same boat as a Republican. Monroe is one of the three congressmen that visit Monroe or visit Hamilton to tell him that Congress is going to investigate him for misprision of funds. You're hanging around with this Reynolds character and everybody knows he's no good. And Hamilton says, my family's away. Come see me this evening. So when the three come, Venable and Pennsylvania congressman, he tells them, you know, I, I'm not using government funds for anything. I am paying out of my bank account blackmail because I'm having an affair with Reynolds' wife. And both the three guys go, oh, look, that's nobody else's business. And uh, he takes them at their word. Monroe sends a copy of his report to Jefferson. But it isn't Jefferson. It's the Secretary of Congress, most people believe now, that released all this to a fellow, Thomas Callender, who was basically the Drudge Report of the 1790s. And uh, he makes sure it gets out. And when Monroe returns from France, Hamilton immediately goes to see him at the Courtright House. You know, you ruined my life personally, politically, professionally. You know, you told everybody about this affair. You said you weren't going to do it. Monroe says that's totally not true. And there's witnesses to the meeting. And finally, Hamilton says, you're nothing but a scoundrel. And Monroe immediately jumps up and basically, OK, pistols, swords or fists. And they start making through the Code Dueo the arrangements in 1797 to fight a duel. And it gets pretty serious when finally another mutual friend of theirs says, uh, you know, this isn't right. He writes a letter to Hamilton say, basically saying, dear Alex, you know, the two of you were officers. If you shoot at each other, you'll kill each other. If I can get Jim to say no harm, no foul, will you walk away from this? And Hamilton agrees to do so. This guy's acting as Monroe's second in the affair. 
Hamilton's uh, second uh, uh, Southern congressman named Jackson is like, I know Monroe, he didn't, he wouldn't do this. He didn't do this. I believe him. So uh, Monroe agrees to let his second say, okay, let's drop this. And of course, Monroe's second is Aaron Burr. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but Hamilton always believed it was still Monroe. Monroe is visiting Washington. He's no longer president when he learns that Eliza Hamilton is in Washington and he pays her a courtesy call. So uh, she agrees to see him and he's standing in the uh, foyer or the uh, salon and uh, she does not sit down, does not ask him to sit down. I don't know why you're here. And he explains that, you know, there's been a, a lot of water under the bridge. He tactfully says, you know, both of us aren't going to be around much longer. Ironically, as you guys know, Eliza Hamilton lives almost to the Civil War in the 1850. And she just says, basically, she paraphrases uh, one of Queen Elizabeth's the first lines, God may forgive you, but I never can. And just said, if you came to apologize, that's fine. But if not, I have nothing to say to you. And after a very uh, comfortable silence, Monroe bows his head and leaves. I see. That would have been something to see, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tim, along with Adams and Jefferson, Monroe also holds the kind of incidental distinction of dying on July 4th. How did the nation react to another patriot passing away on Independence Day? Well, it was five years after Adams and Jefferson, so 55 years after the Declaration. Monroe is penniless. In fact, he had applied for a a memorial of $60,000, quite a bit of which was due from him when he was first in France. And Congress goes back and forth in dilly-dallies, and they don't pass it. I was immediately interested in seeing who was in Congress and how did they vote. Uh, James Knox Polk voted to give Monroe the money. One of Monroe's own naval secretaries, uh, Benjamin Crowninshield, voted against it. James Buchanan, realizing that everybody's going to think he's the worst president, except maybe recently, didn't vote for it. But the one that really stunned me, being 70 years old, was the real Fest Parker, Davy Crockett. Uh, he voted, and I was like, oh, come on, Davy, you're better than this. <laughs> and when the amount is cut to $30,000, it's passed, and among the people who supported that was Crockett. So he can go to the Alamo now. That's fine. <laughs> but uh, he is living with his youngest daughter and her husband, uh, not too far again from Francis Tavern, right there on the uh, 4th of July. We didn't get to mention this, but uh, for two centuries, everybody believed that Monroe was another one of the founding fathers that never freed an enslaved person. He does on his deathbed, a man named Peter Marks, but they just found the documentation. It was at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and a very intrepid executive at uh, Monticello uncovered it. But while he's listening to the bands play and the fireworks go off and the cheers, he very quietly passes away in a small room. The, he, uh, the funeral for Monroe is the largest of that time in New York. It probably rivaled Ben Franklin's 30 years earlier, 40 years earlier. But uh, everybody made note about, gee, this third person. When I was in eighth grade, I had a nun, Mother Mary Ephraim, who was Catherine Hepburn in a habit. And she was teaching American history and spoke about, you know, that those two men died. And then she said, and James Monroe, five years to the day died after that. And I got a quizzical expression on my face and I laughed. And Mr. McGrath, what's so funny? I said, well, it's not so funny, but 
who's who's who who are living ex-presidents back then? And she brought, immediately said, "Well, John Quincy Adams and James Madison." And she, I said, "Oh," and I smiled. She goes, "What's so funny?" I said, "I'm just imagining what went through their heads on the third of July." <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. That's right. <laughs> you know, right. if if Dolly said to Jim. Let's have a barbecue, to, you know, on the fourth. Oh. Well, no, let's let's have it tomorrow. <laughs> right, right. You know that you know that they must have wondered. It's you know you get to be president, but you and you get to die with fireworks. You know, <laughs> it, it just... finally, Tim, can you summarize in just a sentence or two his very popular presidency? Well, first again, thank you guys very much for having me, and this has been a joy. In a sentence or two, Monroe left the country better than it was uh, when he came into the presidency. He uh, he really did. He increased the forts. He increased the Navy. He took great pride in sending the Navy out to intercept uh, slavers, slave trader ships. Again, the problem with Monroe is with all of them, though, is that his ideals of ending slavery through the American colonization society, whatever, all of his noble thoughts stopped at his boundary line of his property. But he 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 improved what he could improve. He maintained what he could not. He did what he could on behalf of. He was the first education president, uh, sort of like uh, you know President Bush, uh, making that a, a cornerstone. Uh, getting girls educated. He was very pleased to see uh, schools springing up with Native American lands. He thought that assimilation was the only way they Native tri American tribes would survive. Uh, so he he certainly comes up short in race relations, uh, reflective of the times and 12 other presidents that uh, uh, were slave owners. But he certainly, with the Monroe Doctrine, uh, with the fact that he he's he's the first one that makes people realize that you can you can credit or blame the president for something. He couldn't do anything with the panic, but he promised he would see if Congress could. But just to improve the mood of the country, the fact that we still call the whole eight years the era of good feelings. Maybe John Quincy Adams said it best at the end of his very long eulogy. He said, have you a son of ardent feelings and ingenuous mind, docile to instruction and panting for honorable distinction? Point him to James Monroe. That's a perfect well way to, to end our episode. I will ask you, Tim, what is, what's next for you? Are you working on a book right now? We are actually a book on Lee and Meade and Lincoln at Gettysburg. I'm not uh, foolish enough or brave enough or nuts enough, uh, not being a military history historian, to write a book about the battle. But I found the decisions that all three of these may, men made starting in June and uh what they did and 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 some things in character, some things totally not, and the consequences of them to be really intriguing. Mm -hmm. And of course, to, to describe, you know, Meade, who was uh, an, an unsung hero in the war still to this day, and he deserves better. Lee at Gettysburg is, 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 as you guys and many of your listeners know, like, what was he thinking? You know, he's he's fighting the same battle the Union generals fought against him. And then Lincoln, at one point, the telegraph office, he's haunting the telegraph office, but there, there's no telegraph back and where he's going back and forth from. And there's just interesting that there's a another character, uh, General Daniel Sickles, mm -hmm. who is a great foil for Monroe. He's almost, am I getting in trouble if I say he's Donald Trump with courage? Interesting. 
it's just the roles that they played and the fact that that battle inspires Lincoln to basically, I think we're, we may not know this in our lifetime, but I think future Americans in history will be saying, well, there is the Declaration of Independence and there is the Constitution. But it's the Gettysburg Address that we're trying to live up to most of all. Well, thank you so much, Tim, for a tremendous conversation. When that book is finished, please come back on American POTUS. And thank you for joining us uh, today. I would be honored, guys. Thank you very much. I hope you and your families and your listeners stay safe and healthy through this pandemic. And again, my appreciation for a really wonderful time thank today. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We would appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review this show on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast. We'd like to thank author Tim McGrath for joining us on this episode about James Monroe. More information on his book, James Monroe, A Life, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. While you're there on our website, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions or comments on this episode or suggestions you might have for future topics. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or like us on Facebook or Twitter so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from James Monroe, quote, our country may be likened to a new house. We lack many things, but we possess the most precious of all, liberty. Liberty.